When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2004, the Boston Red Sox made history, coming back from a 3-0 deficit to defeat the New York Yankees. There were so many memorable moments in that American League Championship Series, but the one that gets overlooked too often are the events that occurred in Game 5. Author John Vampatella stops by to tell us why we all should take time to remember this forgotten game in baseball history. Today on Rounders. A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. I'm very excited today. We have a special guest. Author John Vampatella has joined me to discuss his new book called The Forgotten Game, and that covers Game 5 of the 2004 American League Championship Series, and that was notable for a lot of different reasons, that series. If you're not a Red Sox fan like me, or a Yankees fan, I'm sure hasn't forgotten it either, but so many things happened in that series. We had the Red Sox become the first team in MLB history to come back from a 3-0 deficit and win a series. We had game four when Dave Roberts stole second base off of Mariano Rivera and he eventually became the tying run and sent the game into extra innings and the Red Sox ended up winning and starting their climb back to win that series. We had game six when Kurt Schilling came out came out to the mound with his bloody sock and he pitched a gem. That's, you know, enshrined in baseball memory. But game five? Well, that's the critical match. That's the unsung hero of this series. And that's what John Van Patella has written this book about. And he's come by to kind of talk to us about the play-by-play of what occurred during that game, some of the major moments, and why we as baseball fans should really take the time to remember what happened in that game. Because certainly without that game five, we wouldn't have had game six or seven and seen history recorded in the way that it was. So we had a great conversation And I really look forward to you being able to enjoy what he had to share about what happened in that game and just baseball in general. So let's get to our conversation. Please don't forget we have episodes on YouTube that you can also watch if you'd like to see us in person. They come out on Wednesday, so two days after the podcast. That is on YouTube, so you can go and subscribe there. There is a link in the description. And let's go ahead and get to it, folks. My conversation with author John Vampatella and his book, the Forgotten Game. I am joined today by John Vampertella. He is an author of a newly released book called The Forgotten Game, which covers Game 5 of the 2004 American League Championship Series. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. 
Now, John, before we get into the book, because I'm really excited to talk about this, I could not put this down once I started reading it, just the details and bringing me back to that moment in Red Sox and baseball history. I'd love to take a moment to just get to know you a little bit and kind of delve into who you are as a person and as an author. This is a book that was recently released. I noticed from doing a little bit of background research on you that you also have written other books. Is that correct? I have. I've got two other books that are out there, and all three of them are like incredibly different things. Uh, C.S. Lewis is actually my favorite author, and he wrote about all, he did everything from children's fantasy fiction to deep Christian works to personal memoir type. So he did all kinds of stuff. And and I'm kind of like him. Not, I mean, I'm not anywhere near the author caliber of author he is, but um, I'm like him and that I have a whole variety of interests and I like talking about a whole variety of things. And so the three books are, uh, first one's called The Immigrant, which is really essentially the story of my paternal grandfather's immigration to the U.S. from Sicily back in the early 1900s. And it's so it's a little bit of his story set against the backdrop of, uh, set in the context really of the Italian American experience in the 1900s. So it's definitely got a personal, you know, connection to me, but I think it's interesting for people who want to learn more about what Italian Americans went through during that time period. The second one is called um, For Good Reason, and this taps into my professional field, which is I work in sports ministry with college students. And so uh, For Good Reason is essentially a, a conversation about questions that I've had, I've had myself and I've had other people ask me over some 30 years of professional work with college students, professors, coaches, etc. And they're just life questions. You know, can you be good without God? Why does God allow bad things you know, to happen? Um, those sorts of things. Does God even exist? And so it's, it's my attempt to answer those questions, recognizing that we're all coming at those things from a little different perspective. And then of course uh, the forgotten game, which is a baseball book, um, a huge passion of mine. So, I mean, I, you know, when I said I have, I have interests in a lot of areas, I mean, some of them are more peripheral interests. Baseball is definitely one of the uh, core interests of my life. So, uh, but you can see that I, I have three very, very different works out there. I'd love to know, because obviously your journey led you to writing this book, I'm assuming as a Red Sox fan and also as a baseball fan. Did you grow up a baseball fan? I did. Uh, uh, baseball was my first sports love um, and has really never, never left in that regard. Um, I'm happy to tell you kind of the whole story. My, my dad uh, was born on Long Island, son of my grandfather, who was the immigrant, and he grew up a Yankee fan. And Joe DiMaggio was his favorite favorite player. Um, and we moved to Maine when I was four. So I guess, you know, when I was two and three, I, I couldn't think about baseball. Baseball was not on my radar. So by the time I, I got old enough to think about baseball and be really introduced to baseball through T-ball and little league and, and starting to watch it on TV or listen on the radio, uh, I was firmly ensconced in, in Red Sox country up in Maine. And so back then, this is the late seventies, mid to late seventies, early eighties, I could only really follow one team, right? Because ESPN wasn't really a thing. We didn't have, I mean, my house, we didn't have cable until I was in college. So we had really no way of capturing any, any team outside of the local team, which was the Red Sox. And so I would fall asleep at night uh, during the summers with the Red Sox game on my little clock radio next to me. 
And then I would wake up in the morning and the first thing I would do is run and grab the newspaper and check out the box score and the, and the game stories. And of course, the, the coverage was all about the Red Sox. So I got to know the players, Carly Stremsky, George Scott, Fred Lynn, Jim Rice, those guys. And, and uh, it was just easy to relate to them. Now, it created some tension between my father and I, right? Because moving to Maine, he didn't stop being a Yankee fan. So right. my entire baseball life became... Red Sox, Yankees, my dad and me, mm-hmm. right? That whole dynamic. The first ball game I ever went to was 1977 or 78. I should know this off the top of my head. I remember the score was 10-5. They played the Seattle Mariners, the expansion Seattle Mariners. Uh, George Scott hit a boomer, hit a grand slam that day. And I remember just the feeling of, of exiting the tunnel, right, to make my way into the stands at Fenway. We sat up by the green monster. They didn't have green monster seats back then. They just, that was all just netting, but it was along the left field line. And I just remember the experience of, you know, I was probably seven or eight at the time of of walking out of that tunnel into the stands. And I looked out and I saw the, the green grass, you know, the brown dirt, the, the crisp white lines of a major, you know, we're not talking about like a little league field or a high school ballpark. We're talking like, you know, Fenway Park, a major league stadium. And it was just, it was magical, right? You've been to Fenway. It, it is just, it's almost a religious experience, you know, uh, going to Fenway, especially for the first time as a kid, just fell in love with it. And I had no idea the horrors that the Red Sox would inflict on me over the, <laughs> over the course of <laughs> the next handful of decades, but it was very easy to fall in love with them then and, and the sport of baseball. Now, your dad and you having, you know, obviously very different tastes in baseball teams. Did that uh, create some hardships for you as a child, I would assume? Because like you said, there were a lot of points, especially throughout the past 30 to 50 years of Red Sox history, where we have the Yankees getting the upper hand on the Red Sox. How did your dad approach you with those things? Was it a was it a good relationship? Was it kind of, you know, a jest back and forth? It was a little more uh, strained, I guess you could say. Right. Well, I've always had a, just a great relationship with my dad and um, he's one of my heroes. And so he was pretty gentle on me. Of, of course, back then the Yankees always got the upper hand, right? I mean, the Red Sox almost never, I mean, they would win an individual game here and there, but basically when push came to shove, the Yankees always got the upper hand. And one of the first big moments, I guess, for us was 1978, the 163rd game of the regular season. That was the Bucky bleeping dent game right that was the the that horror show and and so you know he could have made my life totally miserable but I think I was young enough at that point where I was kind of devastated and I think he felt bad enough for me that he he didn't rub it in and so I've never talked trash with him about baseball we've Mm -hmm. we've just enjoyed being baseball fans together and of course we've had the rivalry the funny story that comes along with that was in 2003 you remember the Yankees and the Red Sox played each other in that ALCS as well. And it was game seven and Pedro Martinez is pitching and through seven innings, right? He's throwing a great game and everybody in the world thought he was coming out after seven and they go to the bottom of the eighth inning up five, two Ortiz hit a homer, I think in the top of the seventh to make it five, two. And in the, uh, in the bottom of the eighth, uh, I think it's the seventh in the, in the bottom of the eighth inning, Pedro comes out uh, of, he comes out, to the field again, comes out to pitch the, the eighth inning. We're all surprised. But my phone rings, my cell phone rings. It's my dad. And he said, hey, I just wanted to say congratulations. And I'm like, what are you, ta- like, what are you talking about? He said, wow, you know, 
Red Sox look like they're going to win. I mean, dad, this is Red Sox Yankees. You cannot call me. And, and before it's over and congratulate me, you know how these things go. He's like, nah, nah, Pedro's pitching too well. Well, you, you remember how that went, right? Like, you know, base hit, base hit, double. And when Jorge Posada hit the double to tie the game, I literally just hung up on my father. <laughs> like I couldn't even, I couldn't even like talk it out with him. I just was like, bye, boom, I can't talk anymore. And so uh, he kind of gives me grief about that from time to time, but that was just the, really the, the only moment I would say that we have baseball tension. Like we'll, 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 we'll joke with each other. So sometimes we'll call each other during the summer and uh, I'll say, Hey, you doing daddy? He said, ah, bad. The Yankees are losing. I'm like, Oh, good, good. They can't lose by enough for my taste. Right. And he'll laugh, you know? So it's um, we have a really good natured relationship, even centered around that arch rivalry. That's great to hear. And, and overall, you grew so you grew up in this rivalry, this this environment where it's Red Sox Yankees. And here you've written a book about the Red Sox versus the Yankees, two thousand four ALCS Game Five. One game is all you cover in the book. I mean, there's a lot more to it in terms of the stories that you've included. But did your relationship with your dad growing up in that environment? Do you think that influenced your writing of this book and putting the attention on this game? Well, I would definitely say that my dad has been a huge influence in my life, you know, for a, for a lot of reasons. Um, he's a wonderful man and I, he was been a great dad and he, you know, he helped me fall in love with baseball. And, and I always appreciated the fact that he let me grow up with the team of my choosing, so to speak, like it would have been very, very easy for him to push me into being a Yankee fan. Right. Would have been very easy. Uh, he could have decorated the house with Yankee, everything. And, and he didn't, he, he let me root for whomever I rooted for. Yeah. And so he, he allowed me to grow into, into my own baseball fan. If you get what I'm saying. Sure. So in some ways, this book is a, is a, it's a tribute to baseball. It's a tribute to that Red Sox team that finally, you know, gave Red Sox fans what we've been hoping for forever. Yep. And in, in some respects, it's a tribute to my dad who, um, who again, helped me fall in love with the sport uh, it's definitely not a gotcha dad kind of book. It's definitely more of a thank you, you know, um, because without him, I would never have uh, fallen in love with the game. Uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I wrote it for him. Sure. Uh, but I, I would say he definitely had an influence on me in my overall baseball fan story uh, and even the rivalry, you know, just allowing me to, to be my own person, you know, when it comes to it. Cause that, I mean, it didn't have to go that way, right. It didn't have to go that way. Can you talk to me a little bit about the moment that you realized that you wanted to write an entire book around one game? What was yeah. the inspiration for that? Well, I've, just in terms of writing, I've always been a writer at heart. And so the way that I've always processed information has been by researching and writing it out. And that's allowed me to collect my thoughts. It could be anything from a professional problem that I'm dealing with to something else in my life to just a societal issue that I'm struggling with. And certainly for sports stuff. Same thing. So, you know, if anyone watches this podcast or listens to it um, and is a football fan, yeah, I wrote a humongous paper on Deflategate. And there's probably, it's probably safe to say that there are few people in the world who have studied that issue as much as I have. Right. And so I had to put all my thoughts down on paper. It's not, it's on the internet, but it's not like it's published in a magazine or whatever. I'm thinking about turning that into a potential book. That's another story for another day. Um, but for this particular book, I would say that the the inspiration came from wanting to write a sports book and 
that team was, was the most influential team probably in, in all my life. Now being a new England sports fan, you know, the Celtics have won a lot. The Bruins have won the Patriots winning in one was a huge deal. Cause that was the first moment where I thought, Oh, if they can win it, maybe, maybe the Red Sox can win it. Yeah. But it's still the Red Sox are dealing. And by then the Patriots already won a couple. Right. But, uh, but, but when, when the Red Sox won it all in Oh four, it was, it was, you know, the ultimate, in sports fandom for me. And so I wanted to write a story about that, but you know, a lot has been written about the 2014, right? right? Because it was, it was an historic team. But what I realized was that nothing really had been written or not much had been written. A lot had been written about that, that team's playoff run, yeah. but very little had been written about any individual game per se. Now I chose this specific game. <clears throat> well, I thought it'd be interesting to, to do one game because I hadn't really seen that done before and so right. i thought it'd be really interesting to try and i picked that game because even non-red sox fans remember game four because the big moment was the dave roberts steal of second base right that's the iconic moment of game four game six is known for what what's the big big thing game six is is known for right it's shillings bloody sock right <laughs> and then and then game seven they complete the comeback right, right. but game five like people forget what even happened in that game? And I think it's the best game of the entire series. It had the most twists and turns and it had the most gut-wrenching activity. And, and uh, so it's kind of the game that people don't really think about as much when they think about that series. But to me, it's one of the great games in baseball history. And I just wanted to spend some time to reflect on it and honor it and present it to people who maybe may have actually forgotten about it. You brought back so many memories for me in reading this book, because you're right. We tend to focus on the big moments as we go through. And, you know, now that we're 17 years removed from this, you know, it it tends to kind of fade into the background, but starting to read the details, I started reliving that game in my head. And I remember, you know, I was in college, I was in Leominster, Massachusetts, which was some friends, we were watching the game. I remembered the quote and you mentioned it in the book, but it had popped in my head when I started reading it. Kevin Millar, the Red Sox first baseman, left fielder DH, you know, saying, don't let us win game five. Don't let us win game five because we got Pedro and then we've got Kurt Schilling and then we're back in front of, you know, Fenway for game seven and just seeing his optimism and kind of getting excited for that game because we won one, but also being a Red Sox fan, like you said, and realizing, you know, something's going to go wrong. They're going (laughs) to screw it up. This is it. But this, this, this book really helped bring all those back for me. And I think we need to set the table for other baseball fans who maybe don't understand the heartbreak that was associated with being a Red Sox fan up until this moment. So you've written this book about the 2004 ALCS game five, you know, that game that really, was the continuation of propelling us to that first World Series win um, in 90. I should know this is a Red Sox fan. 86 86 years. Thank you. Yeah, 86 years. So, John, if you can help me kind of fill in the gaps for everyone else, what was it like for Red Sox fans up until this moment in terms of their relationship with the Yankees? What heartbreaks had we suffered up until this point? Oh, you're, you're, you're killing me by having me actually talk about all the bad <laughs> stuff. Um, the, uh, but that's part of being a Red Sox fan, right? Is, is. Is, the, is you have to, part of what makes the, the victory so sweet is because there's been so many struggles, right? So wow. many depressing, awful moments, right? Um, and, I, you know, I'm not old enough to, I was born in 1969. So I don't remember yep. the 1967 heartbreak against the Cardinals. I obviously don't remember 1946 against the Cardinals or even 
49, I have a book on my shelf uh, called The Summer of 49, which is about that pennant race between the Red Sox and the Yankees back then. And right. that's a great book. Um, and the last weekend of the, of the season, the Yankees went out and prevent the Red Sox from winning the pennant. So there's, there's heartbreak. Number one, we can go all the way back to Babe Ruth as being a heartbreak, but we won't have Absolutely. to go that far. Yep. But from my experience, I'll just start with my experience. 78 was a good place to start. Yep. That was a, a great Red Sox team that year. And they had a 14 and a half game lead, uh, 14 or 14 and a half game lead in July. Mm-hmm. And they, they end up losing on day 163 to the Yankees when Bucky Dent hits the, the little blue Homer over over the green monster and just breaks my heart yankees go on to win the world series that year yep in 86 now this was against the mets not the yankees but in 86 you know they have the world series in their grasp right in their grasp against the mets game six they're up and they blow that lead and then they go on to lose that game and then they even blow people forget this i could have written a book about game seven of that series but right um they're up three nothing in game seven and Bruce Hurst is dominating who he would have won the uh, world series MVP that year. He was dominating, but he gets pulled because um, he'd been dominating for like four or five innings. Then he gets pulled because he was pitching on three days rest. And then once again, the bullpen implodes and the Red Sox, Red Sox lose. So they had two great chances to win that series. And, you know, mm-hmm. you're devastated, right? Uh, in 1999, the Red Sox and Yankees met in the playoffs and, um, I mean, the Red Sox had made the playoffs a bunch of times in there. Oh, we got beat by the A's, the Indians, right, in, in 88, in 90 by the A's, and then 95 and 98 yep. by the Indians. So now they're 99, and they're playing the Yankees uh, in the playoffs, and the Yankees just smoke them four games to one. It was a – you know, they just took them out to the woodshed, and that was just an unpleasant baseball experience. Uh, and this is, you know, at the height of the Yankee dynasty, and then – they meet up in 03. The Yankees do it to him again when Aaron Boone hits the game-winning homer in the seventh in the game that we were just talking about. And so it just seemed like there was one, you know, beat down after another that came along at the hands of the Yankees for sure, but also at the hands of, of other teams that just kept, you know, as soon as the Red Sox looked like they were about to break through, somebody would just push them down and we'd have to pull out the whole, well, wait till next year, you know, refrain. Yep. And you can only say that so much before you get really tired and really get tired of, of saying it, you know? It's so, um, so th- yeah, if you're a Red Sox fan, you've had some great moments, some great players come through. Absolutely. But, but you, you had been, think about it, 86 years. I mean, people have lived born, they're born and they live entire lives with great grandchildren and pass away without seeing the Red Sox win a world series. And so it just seemed like it was never, ever going to happen. Uh, and then it did. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was absolutely. And, and like I said, just reliving that moment, we were spoiled a little bit after that because we had such a nice run afterwards, you know, of winning more World Series championships. But that one was just, it, it, it can't be topped. It really can't. And, you know, this book really did that for me. So, John, before we get into any more details, let's just take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch to hear from our sponsors. Hey everybody, it's Jeff, the founder and host of the show, and I have some exciting news for you. In addition to the Baseball History Podcast you know and love, I'm launching a weekly email newsletter. In it, you'll find a link to each new episode, along with curated baseball history news, stories, polls, and more. It's completely free, and it's a simple way to enjoy the Rounders show that you love even more. 
And for those of you who would like to support the show as a subscriber, you can easily become a member by signing up using the link in each newsletter. For just $5 a month, I'll send you a weekly email with bonus episode content, including our newest show, This Week in Baseball History, where we take a look at the major stories that happened throughout baseball's past and how they relate to America's pastime today. As members, you'll also have opportunities to vote on future episode topics and participate in exclusive events, such as the Rounders Fantasy Baseball League. If you'd like to send me a small token of your appreciation just once a year, we have an annual plan that will save you money over the monthly fee. And if you really enjoy the show and you want to send me a more significant contribution, I've created a Rounders Starting 9 tier for an annual payment of $100. You'll have my eternal gratitude and have your name included in the episode credits as a show producer. In addition, you'll get to choose the topic for one episode each year, and you'll get a free Rounders Starting 9 member t-shirt. Most importantly, you'll continue helping me grow this show. I'm grateful for your support, and I look forward to sharing more of the best stories from baseball history with you in the future. Click the link in the show notes to sign up for the email newsletter today, or go to rounders.substack.com. That's rounders.substack.com. Now, let's get back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We have kind of set the table about how disappointing it has been for a Red Sox fan because we haven't experienced that yet. And then we go into the 2004 season. And I remember, at least from my recollection, not thinking that we were going to be even close to competing for a World Series that year. We had some tough things happen. That was the offseason before where Alex Rodriguez was supposed to come to Boston and we lost him to the Yankees, you know, and then we had Pedro Martinez. Is he leaving? Is he staying? What's going to happen? He's getting older. Is he worth the money? You've got Nomar Garcia Parra, who's unhappy. You've got Manny Ramirez, who's unhappy. I feel like there was a cloud going into that season. What is your recollection of, of going into that 2004 season? Were you optimistic? Do you remember that moment? Well, I remember the team being good, being really yes. good. Uh, Pedro was at the tail end of his utter his streak of utter dominance right so you knew he was still going to be good but you also thought he's probably not you know all caps pedro martinez anymore yeah right we didn't really we thought ortiz was good and he he stood out in 03 but we didn't yet know that he was going to be this legendary figure they right. tried to trade nomar in the offseason no more garcia Parra, right as part of that alex rodriguez trade that you were talking about that a lot of red sox fans totally don't know or have totally forgotten about that alex rodriguez was actually virtually a member of the Red Sox and, yeah. and was willing to take a pay cut in right. order to make that happen. And so Red Sox fans who boo him, it's like, look, the guy was willing to lose money to come to Boston. Um, and it was the players association that overruled that trade, um, not allowing it. To so it's hard to hate on a rod because he, he tried to be a part of the Red Sox, but if it was um, his choice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, I think that that trade though, it really soured Garcia Parra, which I was going into that year wondering whether or not it was, that was going to affect him or not. And it, it turned out it might have because he ended up getting traded later on during the season. Right. But the big acquisition was Kurt Schilling. If you recall, right. They, right. they, they managed to get Schilling and that was a big deal because Schilling still at that point in his career was awesome. 
Right. And uh, and in 01, he had dominated the Yankees in the World Series with the Diamondbacks, and he was and he had a great year that year for the Red Sox. I think he went 21 and five. Uh, he was fantastic. He was better than Pedro, and so that was a big addition. But you know, having come so close, you think this could go one of two ways: either they're on the cusp of greatness, or that was their shot in 03, and they blew it, and now it's going to be a, a few more years before they get back there. Well, I think we were fortunate enough that they were still good in 04, uh, very good. And they made a couple of key moves in the offseason and then during the season to uh, to get themselves over the hump. But, you know, it started, It was like every year. The Red Sox had tons of good players. Yep. And I think you have to be – in order to be a Red Sox fan, you you either have to revel in misery or you have to be an eternal optimist, right? That that right. this is finally the year it can happen. I mean, even even this year – you know, are the Red Sox going to do anything? Are they not? I mean, we'll find out as they enter the last days here of the, of the, uh, of the season, but you have to, I guess you have to believe, right. I just can't imagine going into a season going well, individual seasons. Like I knew that uh, 2020 was going to be miserable, right. There was yeah. COVID the team we knew wasn't very good. Sale was out. Chris sales out for the whole year. So, you know, you just kind of, okay, we'll bite the bullet this year. But in general, I think, think most fans like to think, Hey, if a couple of things break, right, we could actually be pretty good. Sure. So I think we always had that sense of optimism, but, but we had never gotten over the hump. So it, it was hard to be optimistic that the 2004 would be the year that they'd be able to do that. And if we had to recap, so we know the Red Sox made the playoffs that year. We know they made it to the American League Championship Series. I guess if you had to summarize from your research, from you writing the book, what was the state of the Red Sox clubhouse going into game five? Because leading up to that point, for those who may not remember or recall, they're down three, nothing. And it wasn't a, oh, we just lost it in the 10th inning, three games in a row. I mean, the game before, I think they had lost 18 to nine, if I remember right. They got, yeah, they 19, got 19, eight. in game three, they lost, they lost, the first game they was a tough one because Schilling uh, was injured and he got bombed in Yankee Stadium. Um, yep. Game two, you had Pedro going, so you thought we're in good shape, but he lost three to one in a tough one. And I was mm-hmm. like, uh-oh, now we're in trouble, right? The two aces have both lost. And now game three, can the Red Sox pull it back together in Fenway? Uh, no, they got absolutely destroyed 19 to eight. And it seemed like every pitch the Yankees were hitting off the wall or over the wall. And just, it was bludgeoning. Yeah. So game four, you're thinking this team's dead and buried, right? First of all, you're down 3-0 and looking bad in the process. Secondly, no team had ever come back from 3-0 down in a series. But Kevin Millar, right? He was the one who said, don't let us win tonight, right? So if he, his thought was, if we win game four, We've got Pedro in game five, uh, Schilling in game six, uh, and then who knows, game seven. And they somehow pulled out game four. And I think as a fan, you're still thinking, well, that's great, but you still got to win three in a row. And we didn't even know if Schilling could even go in game six, really. He had that experimental surgery done on his ankle just, you know, yeah. the day before. So so that was unbelievable. But but heading into game five, you didn't really know that, that was even going to be possible, right? So you're like, how in the world are they getting patched together a pitching rotation but but the team itself was optimistic right they were they were they thought they were every bit as good as the yankees and so they were when they said don't let us win tonight they believed that uh that don't, that wasn't kevin millar just being a loudmouth. that was i think it reflected the the feeling the team had that if you know obviously if we lose we're done but if we win hey we could we could get rolling here and you know they did they they started playing good baseball they're pitching 
came around in a big way. They got some key hits. And so, yeah, I would say, I would say from a team perspective, they were, they were relatively optimistic uh, going into game five. Now for people that decide to pick up the book and read it, John, each chapter is dedicated to an inning. Can you give them a little bit of a feeling of what to expect? What, what does each chapter consist of? Is it a pitch by pitch? Is it going into the details or maybe the background of the players? What can they expect when they're reading this recap of the game? Sure. It, the way I treat it is like fans watching a game, you know, baseball, one of the great things about it, one of the things that is a, people are critical about the game is that it's slow. But one of the things I love about it is that it's slow and it gives people time to chat and talk about the game and talk about the players you know, in between pitches. So I actually take you batter by batter. And in some cases, pitch by pitch through the game, uh, each inning. And what I do is I supplement it by bringing in comments by some of the game's commentators, which I think adds to the feel of being there. Uh, and then I take a million little, no, not literally a million, but quite a few tangents, you know, side stories where I talk about the background of the players, how they got where they were, we spend some time talking about baseball strategy. So I devote an entire section to at, at a certain point in the game, the Yankees are faced with the question of do they bunt or not? And so I get into some of the modern analytical tools that people use to talk about whether bunting is actually a good viable strategy or not. Uh, I talk, I go into a huge section on who's the greatest pitcher of all time um, right. at their peak, uh, which I think for some people won't, they won't like my conclusion, but I think it's at least, that's fun fan conversation, right? That's the stuff that fans talk about all the time. You know, was Pedro better than Koufax? Was Koufax better than Maddox? Like these are great conversations that that people have, you know, just where they're talking around the water cooler, but even when they're at a game, you know, they'll talk about that sort of stuff. So I talk about all these different different things. I spend a while when Wakefield comes in the game in the 12th and 13th innings, I talk about the knuckleball, a little bit of the history of the knuckleball and why it's such a difficult pitch to throw and hit and catch and what that did to the 13th inning, you know, which was a white knuckle ride, the likes of which I've never experienced before or since. Right. So, so I take, I take the reader on a, what I think are pretty enjoyable little uh, side conversations to bring out a little more and who these people were that were playing the game, what, what baseball is all about, baseball strategy, some history, that sort of stuff that I think really fills in the blank. So it's not just purely a pitch by pitch recap of the game. Absolutely. And I wanted to make that clear because I didn't want anybody to think they'd be reading a scorecard here. You go into depth into so many of the backstories that are going on during this time. Like you said, I really, the bunting one was really interesting to me thinking about how teams approach that, especially in the playoffs and just thinking about, you know, there's some that, that are very against it in any situation. There's some, well, if it's situational or if it's in the playoffs, it's okay. So I found that fascinating. And there's just, there's a lot of great nuggets in there that I did not know, obviously living through it the first time around. So I very much appreciated that. John, as you wrote the book, can you think of two or three moments during game five that comes to your mind as like pivotal, pivotal plays that defined that win for the Red Sox? Sure. I mean, on a negative side, Derek Jeter getting the go-ahead hit for the Yankees in the sixth inning off Pedro was huge, right? And of course, it had to be Jeter, right? I mean, you know, Thorne on the Red Sox side. And it was a classic Jeter moment. You know, Pedro's trying to get out of the inning. He, he In that situation, Pedro was very similar to what he was the year before. He, he had reached the 100 pitch count, Terry Francona in 04, as opposed to Grady Little in 03, but elected to keep him in which we were all like, Oh man, are you like, literally this just happened last year and they made the same mistake. And, 
you know, Pedro was obviously in my mind at all time, you know, the greatest ever when he was at his best, but by 2004, he was no longer the great Pedro Martinez. He was still right. very good, but he was much more of just a good pitcher than a great pitcher. And, and to leave him in, you know, and of course, Jeter gets the bases clearing double to give them the lead. It was like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. But I would say from a positive standpoint, there were a few moments. One was in the eighth inning when David Ortiz hit the Homer off Tom Gordon to cut the lead uh, to one run four to three. It was at that point you thought, okay, they just need one. And when you're, when you're behind just one, all you need is one pitch, right? Any hitter, especially in that Red Sox lineup could tie the game. Now you don't necessarily expect it, but it gives you a chance. It gives you a puncher's chance for just one at bat. All you need is one swing of the bat. And so for them to come back and and to tie the game at that point was huge. They ended up getting another run um, on a sack fly and that didn't tie the game, but I thought the Homer was, was enormous. And of course it was Ortiz, right? Uh, I think uh, in the ninth inning, the Red Sox caught a huge break. Tony Clark was up and uh, Ruben Sierra was at first base and Clark hits a rope down the right field line. And for anyone who's familiar with Fenway, you know exactly what I'm about to say, but the, uh, for people who've never been to Fenway, the right field line is only like three Oh two down what's called Pesky's pole. And then, it juts out pretty quickly, but the fence itself is only like three feet high in that section of the, of the ballpark. So it's really, really, really short. And Clark hit this line shot down the line and it hit off the fence. If it had bounced in play, Sierra was going to score what probably would have been the winning run from first, but it hit the fence and bounced up into the stands for a ground rule double. And so it kept Sierra at third Clark at second and the run did not score. And the Red Sox got out of the inning. So it was one of those moments where in the past, the Yankees get that break. But this time, the Red Sox got the break. And it, again, it was one of those moments where you think, huh, maybe, maybe something different is happening here than yeah. what has historically happened between these two teams. So I thought that was that was key. And then I think another moment was in the 13th inning when when the Yankees are rallying off Wakefield. And he's throwing pass ball, wild pitch after wild pitch after pass ball. Like Veritek was catching, and he just could not handle that pitch. And there were three official pass balls in that inning, but there could have been another three more because he let more get by him, just not far enough for runners to advance. So every single pitch was it was like life or death in that inning. And the Red Sox escaped without allowing a run. So I think I think the fact that they got out of that inning was was huge. You know. I- just recapping again, some of those moments, thinking about how things could have changed Just one play. That's it. You know, game five had so many of those moments. And that kind of leads me to the question. I'd, I'd love to hear from you, John, what makes this game so pivotal for every baseball fan to dive deeper into? Why should baseball fans pick up this book? Well, I think, I think it's, it highlights just an incredible, just baseball game played at the highest level yeah. between what I think are the two greatest rivals in the sport. I get that Cubs and Cardinals fans or Giants and Dodgers fans would, would quibble with that. Yeah. For my money, it's hard to, it's hard to beat Yankees, Red Sox. And I think you have to appreciate the drama that these two teams have been through together. Those playoff games suck the life out of you as a fan, especially as a fan of one of those two teams. This game went for five hours and 49 minutes. It was I mean, it was like getting 10 root canals. It was, it was, it was an unbelievably draining and that's just as a fan, right? Unbelievably draining experience. So it was, it was baseball played at the highest level by 
two bitter, bitter rivals who had just gone through this the year before. And so to me, 03 and 04 represented the absolute peak of Yankees Red Sox rivalry because they were playing for the biggest stakes possible. Now in 2018, the Red Sox and Yankees played in, in the AL divisional series. So right. big series, huge implications, but it wasn't the next step, right? This was the ALCS, unless eventually down the road, they change the rules about how the World Series is done. Right. You know, the ALCS is the, is the is the highest level that the Yankees and Red Sox can play each other in. And so it was the biggest stakes possible. So I just think, I think to be able to recap a game of that magnitude that's played with such intensity, drawn out over so many innings with so many twists and turns, it is, it's a really fun baseball experience. But I think it helps non-Red Sox Yankees fans to to dive into the rivalry a little bit more mm. because it's not like a, a mid-May game between the Red Sox and the Royals. You know, it's just it's like not that that necessarily could be a bad game. Maybe there's exciting moments in that one, too. But but this is October. This is ALCS. This is a season on the line. Yankees, Red Sox and some of the great players that were involved in that game. So. People might not realize, and so here's kind of a, if I can go ahead and ask you a little trivia question. Um, sure. That there were four players who played in that game that have been elected to the Hall of Fame. Can you name all four of them? Ooh. Well, you know, obviously we have to go with uh, Pedro Martinez. Yep. He's in. Um, Schilling has not made the right. Hall of Fame yet. I don't think he's even eligible yet, is he? Uh, well, he, he he's, he's failed on recent years ballots. So I don't know if you, how many more years he's got left on the, the ballot, but he hasn't. Made it. Uh, let's think it's 2004 ALCS. Oh, John, you put me on. I put you on the spot. Now you put me on the spot. The other three yeah. players. Let's see. We've got, we've got Manny Ramirez in left. We've got Johnny Damon in center field. We've got Minkiewicz at first. We've got Bellhorn at second. We've got Mueller at third. Jason Veritek is not in the hall of fame. I'm going to, for the sake of time, kick it back to you and go over the three. I, I wave right. the white flag. So Jeter. Okay. We're looking on the Yankee side. I was thinking yeah, of the Red yeah, Sox. Yeah, both teams. Both teams playing the game. So so you have Pedro, Jeter, Mariano, yep. Rivera. And then the last one is the one that trips most people up, which is uh, Mike Messina, right? We tend not to think of him as a Hall of Famer, but he got recently elected. So four guys. And then you think about the guys who played in that game who are unbelievable players who are not in the Hall of Fame. So you have Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez, Gary Sheffield, um, Bernie Williams, um, Kurt Schilling, right? It's like there's some yeah. incredible players who probably have the resume to be in the Hall of Fame but aren't right. for one reason or another, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it was, a, it was a game featuring some of the great players the game has ever had, really. So it has all the elements of a great baseball story, incredible drama, personalities, big moments, uh, a bitter rivalry, lots of action, conversation about baseball strategy. I think it covers so much that as a baseball book, um, there's a lot of meat on the bone, you know, uh, for the baseball fan. Absolutely. So, John, people, we have them interested in this book, and it's important that you go read about this, not only as a baseball fan, but if you just want to relive that game again, which is such a, like you said, a pivotal part of that whole run, where can people pick up a copy of this book? All right. Well, of course, Amazon is is a place where everyone's getting everything these days, but you can look it up on amazon.com. 
And if you want a, and this is where as an author, a relatively new author, this stuff still boggles my mind, but some people would prefer to have a signed copy, which I'm happy to, to do, but you can't right. get that through Amazon. So you have to come to my website, which is johnvampatella.com. And so um, just look me up and then there's a, there's a shop button and, and you can, you can find it there and, and I'd be happy to send you one. John. Also, people may want to connect with you and learn a little bit more about your background, maybe some follow-up questions after they read the book. You mentioned your website. Are there other ways that people can connect with you personally as an author? Sure. They can find me on Instagram. Uh, I would. I have a personal Instagram, just John Vampatella. I have, a, I have an author Instagram, John Vampatella author. Uh, you can also find me at Gmail, author at gmail.com. I'd be happy to uh, engage with anybody about what I do for a living, about baseball, about the Red Sox. Really, I'm a pretty friendly sort of person. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody about anything they would they would like to chat about. And if I can get a Rounders exclusive for you for this show, I noticed on your website that you have two books that are upcoming. Would you be able to give us a preview of any upcoming works that you have in the pipeline? Well, well, so uh, when, when I say in the works, so I'm in a stage of writing, of writing yeah. some more books. And so th- none of them have been pitched to publishers yet. And so they are, when I say they're in the pipeline, they're thing, projects I'm working on, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about a couple of them. So one of them is called 53rd Man. This is a temporary title. Maybe a publisher would say we have to change the title, but 53rd sure. Man. And it's really about the life at the bottom of an NFL roster, uh, which is really, really interesting um, because they go through a lot just to try to survive in the NFL. So I've known quite a few guys who have played in the NFL. And so this is cold from conversations with them and some research on players who have been on NFL practice squads and who have you know fought their way to stay in the league for any amount of time. Uh, let's see. Uh, I would say another is a more professional work called The Gospel Prism, which is I unpack some Christian theology, which mm-hmm. uh, if that's your thing, then that's that could be interesting to you. Uh, another one is uh, for such a time as this, and that one is one that I'm really particularly interested in. Again, totally, totally different um, conversation. This one is about uh, a woman. Um, I got thinking about this during the during the global pandemic, basically. Yep. But this is about uh, a woman who, uh, in the early 1900s, who uh, served as she was a self-taught nurse. During the Spanish flu pandemic, she was was African-American living down in Texas, and she ended up taking care of all kinds of people, including some members of the KKK, which is really interesting given, of course, who she was and the the time in which she she lived. So, um, again, a totally different kind of book, but I'm just interested in telling stories of, of things that I find really interesting and uh, hopefully other people find them interesting too. So I'm writing about a lot. Let's put it that way. Well, for the, for our listeners who want to follow John, I'll make sure and include everything in the show notes so you can check out his website and keep up with what he's doing. Those all sound like amazing titles, John. I'm also going to, I'm going to follow your newsletter so I can keep in touch with what's going on. Awesome. So, thanks. No, no problem. And so for our fans, the book is game, the forgotten game. Oh no, I'm getting blurred out. <laughs> I was going to show the the cover of your book. I'll make sure to include Here, that. I'll do as well. that. There we I'll go. All right, The Forgotten Game, Game 5, 2004 ALCS. Pick up your copy on Amazon online from John's website. Again, I'll include the links in the show notes to make it simpler for you. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
And to our fans, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. Remember, you can leave me a good game tip using one of the payment methods below. Please follow on social media. Check out the companion video on YouTube. And most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.